people would write things like, well, we know that you have to have patents in order to have innovation. And yet, when we go to look at the data, it seems like they're actually maybe bad. Maybe they reduce innovation. Maybe they don't help innovation. But we can't understand. How could that be? You're listening to The Corbett Report. Welcome, friends. James Corbett here at CorbettReport.com. Today is the 16th of July, 2019. And today we are joined on the line by David K. Levine, who is available at his website, uh, dklevine.com. Of course, the link will be in the show notes for today's episode. And today we're also going to be talking specifically about a book that David K. Levine co-wrote with Michele Boldrin, Against Intellectual Monopoly, which is available in paperback. It's also available online through the website. And again, the link will be in the show notes. David K. Levine, thank you very much for joining us for today's conversation. Well, thank you for having me. Let's start by talking a little bit about your background and your bona fides. Who are you and why are you writing about intellectual monopoly? Okay, well, I am and have been for many years now an economics professor. I'm I mostly, for a long part of my career, studied game theory and general equilibrium theory as a theorist. And I was, in fact, drawn into the area of intellectual monopoly or property through my theoretical work. Um, it, was a, it was a truism among economists when I was young. I believe this as much as anybody else. The widespread view among economists was that intellectual property is a evil, but it's a necessary evil. And it's evil because it's a monopoly, and for a variety of reasons that economists understood for a long time, monopoly has a lot of disadvantages and downsides, but we understood that without the monopoly granted by patents and copyright, there would be no or very little innovation, there would be no or very little literature, and so forth and so on. So we viewed this as a necessary incentive. And so Nikeli and I, some years ago, sort of following up on, on earlier work with small-scale models, started building a, a large-scale model, general equilibrium model, of how innovation took place. And in doing so, we built into it a role for intellectual property, for monopoly, the necessity of monopoly. And we worked through this model. And at some point, at some point, we realized just as a matter of pure theory that the wasn't, it was innovation that was doing all the lifting, that the monopoly wasn't actually doing anything. And if there was no monopoly, the lifting would still take place. And this sort of challenged our, this challenged our beliefs. Um, we thought, gosh, how could this be? But we worked through the theory carefully and said, well, theoretically, this is correct. But, you know, who knows if it's relevant in the real world. So then we started looking around. And we discovered, much to our surprise, that there's a long literature in economics empirical economics, people look at data, people look at the effect of patents and so forth and so on. And it was very puzzling literature. It's very puzzling to the people that wrote it. People would write things like, well, we know that you have to have patents in order to have innovation. And yet when we go to look at the data, it seems like they're actually maybe bad. Maybe they reduce innovation. Maybe they don't help innovation, but we can't understand how could that be? Well, we could understand how that could be because we had been working on this theory that said that might very well be the way it was. And so we, we felt we had a reconciliation. And this led ultimately to the book. You know, as we looked more and more, the book is not, it's not original research in the sense that we did not go out and get our own data and analyze our patents, good or bad. 
It's a book in which we take other people's research, empirical economist research, all of them, not cherry picking just a few, to take a look and see you know, when does it work, does it work, right? And also an effort to try to understand and explain how could it be, you know, if you don't, if you can't get a copyright, how could you profit off of a book, right? And <clears throat> we've had a substantial impact in the economics community, on a subtle one, I think, but I mean, you know, it's no longer a truism among economists that you must have patents, you must have copyright to have innovation. People now well understand that, well, there might be circumstances where it would be helpful. By and large, it's not needed. In many cases, it's counterproductive. There's a substantial emerging literature. Um, people like Jim Besson and, Besson and Moore have done empirical work on software patents, basically showing that that, 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 that that's an easy case to close. Um, software patents are no good, um, and on and on and on. So that's the that's the background of how we came to this. That's how the book came to be written, um, and that's sort of our current that's our current understanding is that by and large patents and copyrights are unnecessary evil, and we would actually prefer just to get rid of them. Right. It is quite a voluminous uh, uh, book, and it does cover this issue from a lot of different angles, the empirical as well as the theoretical. So we will get into that. But before we start that discussion, perhaps we should de just define the ground terms here, because as, sure. as I say, this is against intellectual monopoly, which most people would refer to as intellectual property. Uh, an interesting but a telling uh, change in appellation there. Why, why intellectual monopoly? What does that indicate about what we're dealing with here? Well, people often compare people often compare the violation of copyright with theft, as in theft of a bicycle. But you can, ideas are not stolen in the way that bicycles are stolen. If you steal my bicycle, I have no bicycle. You can't really steal my idea. You can make use of my idea, but I still have my idea, whatever you do with it. So really, if you've stolen anything from me, you might have stolen some of my customers. There might have been people to whom I was going to sell the idea and you sell the idea instead. We don't, generally speaking, view customers as being property, right? And it sort of goes as, in fact, a rather offensive idea in many ways, right? So the point being, it's not theft. It's not property. It's not property in the sense of a bicycle or a farm or a house. And I should say by the way, both McKelly and I are from the Chicago, basically from the Chicago School of Economics. We're not, we're not some sort of radical communist opposed to property in general. I think in general we view it, I think there's a lot of empirical evidence that property is a very good thing. But ideas, useful ideas are not property. They, they, they don't lose the use of my idea because you have the same idea or because you learn the idea from me. Of course, the other point of this is that I don't, you know, if I have the idea and you don't have the idea, then probably you're going to have to pay me to get the idea or else how are you going to get it? I mean, if you break into my house and rifle through my secret files, that would be theft. But that's not generally speaking what we're talking about. We're talking about patents and copyright. I sell you a book. You read the book. You sell the book to somebody else. Or you make a copy of the book and sell the book. You're in competition with me, but you haven't stolen the book. You paid me for the book after all. So the terminology, there are basically three kinds of intellectual property. There are patents. Patents are supposed to be relatively um, 
relatively narrow in scope, protecting just, you know, sort of the details of a particular idea of a particular innovation. There's copyright, which is relatively broader in scope and it protects kind of the, it protects kind of the, the, the writing, the, the, the form of the writing, the, not, the, not the plot and so forth, but the characters and the details of how I write. And then there's trademark, which is something yet else again, and uh, I've gone back and forth. I know you interviewed Stefan Kinsella. Uh, he and I have gone back and forth over trademark. I think he finally convinced me it's not a great, it's not a great idea. But perhaps we won't discuss that. We won't discuss that today. We can stick to copyright and to patents. It is. It is such a multifaceted thing, and a lot of different things are kind of grouped together under this big umbrella. But let's let's concentrate then on. I think the argument, the, the first line of argument that most people take along these issues, specialists and non-specialists alike, which is the utilitarian argument, although I don't think that's what most people actually care about at the base, and it's certainly not what I care about at base, but that is where most people start the argument. And you start your book with an exploration of James Watt and the steam engine, which is sometimes put forward as an argument for intellectual property in some way, but as you show, actually was a hindrance on innovation in the steam steam engine market of the late 19th, early 20th, or late 18th, early 19th century. Talk about that market and how it was impeded by the monopoly given to James Watt. So this is this is part, I'll, I'll discuss the details in just a moment, but this turns out to be rather typical. There's this kind of, there's this kind of literature of celebrating the innovator. It, it's, a, you know, the idea of the great, of the great, you know, the James Watt, the man that made the steam engine, the man that brought us steam power, the man that revolutionized the world. There's other people, there's other innovators who have had that, you know, Thomas Edison's and so forth and so on. The interesting feature of this is that while these people are lionized, typically their work is a small part of a bigger picture. And their great success is not so much in the depth of their innovation or the contribution they've made to humankind, but their ability of taking credit largely for the work of others to have patented, gotten a monopoly over it, and kept other people from subsequently innovating. So this, this idea that James Watt was an obstruction rather than a promotion of innovation is something that applies to others as well, to the details of, of James Watt. What did James Watt do? He did invent something. He invented what's called a separate condenser. This takes the steam into a, a different vessel where it's cooled and then recycled. Now, one thing you should know is it's been quite a long time. So he invented this in the early 1700s or about 1730s, if I remember correctly. Um, after 1800, very few steam engines actually used the separate condenser because there's a change in technology between what's called the low-pressure steam engine, which is what Watt was working on, and high-pressure steam engine, which is what revolutionized the world. So you need a high-pressure, lightweight steam engine, right, to drive a train or a ship, right? You can't use these low-pressure steam engines for that purpose. So the actual innovation didn't play much of a role um, in the Industrial Revolution. The major use of James Watt's innovation was to pump water out of... of um, I guess, out of coal mines, out of mines, a useful thing to be sure, but not in itself a revolutionary thing. Um, the engine, he did not invent the first workable steam engine. There was an earlier, there was an earlier version he made. I'm try, I don't remember the fellow's name off the top of my head, but he, he improved upon an earlier version of the steam engine, also used for draining water from mines. He then patented his particular, he um, 
who is his partner? I wish I had this more at the tip of my fingers. He took on an industrial partner um, and the two would have patented his steam engine and their big contribution was to sue violently anybody that tried to build steam engines until the patent expired in roughly 1800, at which point very little innovation took place in steam engines because he sued the pants off of anybody that tried to build a steam engine. And after 1800, when the patent expired, people could could invent steam engines again um, without threat of being sued by um, by uh, James Watt, and suddenly innovation took off. So, you know, I, I, we, I think our basic conclusion is we probably would have gotten really good steam engines maybe 20, 25 years earlier, if not for the legal activity of James Watt, which is to what he devoted most of his life to. So that seems like ancient history, and that seems like yeah. a very specific example of a particular invention uh, that were innovation of sorts that was patented that stopped, stifled innovation within an industry. But how relevant is that to today, and how can we apply that to the industries of our current era? For example, in the book, you go on to discuss software, and how software in our minds today is very much associated with patent. Uh, there's there's patents for every everything associated with our iPhones and whatever else. Uh, but that wasn't always the case when it came to software and code, was it? And how, how, how did that change? And what does that say about uh, this, this system? Fortunately, when you say everything with software is under patent, fortunately, that turns out not to be true. And I don't, I don't know the exact quote from Bill Gates, but Bill Gates once said, if, if we'd understood at the time how patents were going to be applied to software, there would be no software industry today or words to that effect. And what he says echoes what everybody that worked in the software industry would say. The first important thing to understand is that for a long time you couldn't patent software. So and this is actually people, people, conservatives talk about judge-made law as opposed to legislative law made by legislatures. One of the most outstanding examples of that is the, the patenting of software. This was never authorized by Congress. This was done by a group of judges. Um, in the mid-1900s, uh, mid-1990s, not the mid-1900s, the mid-1990s. Um, and there was, there, there was the, for a long time, patent cases were decided through the regular court system. At some point, Congress decided it was too complicated for the poor judges and they would have a specialized patent court. Um, and so they introduced a specialized patent court and, of course, they staffed it with patent lawyers. One of these patent lawyers was a patent, I would describe as a patent hawk. He became the head of this court. His lifelong ambition had been for there to be patenting of software. When he got to be head of the court, he got to make his dream come true. So he introduced, with the help of his court, software patents for the first time. Now, the important thing to understand is that almost all of the innovation software, almost everything you can think of in software, was invented prior to the patenting of software. We'll go over some of the major innovations since then. But so, you know, the whole, the whole idea, you, know, you think of things, some simple things like the mouse and clicking on buttons um, and so forth and so on. And you think maybe Amazon patented and clicking on buttons. But this was invented, this stuff was invented in the, in the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, computer programs are made up of dozens of little pieces, everything from do loops to if statements and so forth and so on. If any of this stuff had ever been patented, 
right? There's also more sophisticated algorithms. There's, there's algorithms for dealing with memory. There's algorithms for dealing with lists and sorted, you know, just on and on and on. You know, a typical, if you take, you know, say a Java or Python or one of these modern languages, and you look at it, it's just a list of different libraries of different routines that serve many, many different purposes. You don't have to write a program to write on the screen. You don't have to write a program to store your data in a dictionary. That's all there. Okay. And none of it, all of it was invented and none of it was patented. And thank heavens for that, because if any of it was patented, we would not be able to write software because we'd be too busy trying to figure out who to pay in order to be allowed to write the software. Now, you might think, you know, there's there's been a couple of great innovations since um, since the 1990s when software patents were introduced. Um, BitTorrent was one of them. Uh, that was actually not patented. But I think the single biggest innovation that we know of since, since the time the patents were introduced in software was Bitcoin. And you say, how would anybody invent Bitcoin without the benefit of patents? Well, thankfully, they had the benefit of patents, right? As you know, the inventor of, of Bitcoin, Satori, is that his name? Um, oh, wait, I guess he didn't patent. I guess we don't actually know who he is, right? So it's sort of the opposite of patents. Far from patenting the software, he never even told us who he was. He released, released the software anonymously. And by the way, everybody believes he made quite a bit of money off of it, even though we don't know who he is. So there are ways of making good money off of things, even without patents. And well, then yeah. let's let's talk about something, an issue that's raised there. You talk about the way that software was not patentable, and then someone gets on a certain court, and then it becomes patentable. That that's that strike, smacks of the arbitrariness of the entire thing, and brings up the point of the origins of intellectual monopoly, because this is a point that needs to be consciously brought to mind. This did not always exist. This wasn't some sort of natural law that was handed down from on high. This was something that developed over the course of time through judges and, and laws and, and courts. So where did intellectual monopoly come from? What is the roots of this in the law and how did that develop over time? Well, it's an interesting thing because we think of things the opposite in many ways of what they are. We think that there's patents, and because there's patents, innovators come along to invent things to take advantage of patents. Now, it turns out as a practical matter, it works the other way around. People innovate things. They go into business. They make some money. After a while, they get kind of tired of being businessmen. And then, then they want patents. And they say, oh, if only I had a patent, I wouldn't have to work anymore. Right. Of course, they've already invented this stuff. So, you know, it's not it's not that patents are so much or copyrights are so much introduced in order to encourage innovation. It's more of like a retirement scheme for old innovators. So you see this time and time again in industry after industry after industry. You see a thriving industry with tons of innovation. There's no patents. At some point, the industry matures. People say, oh, gosh, you know, we're not growing anymore. We don't have new ideas. Let's get some patents so we can make some money off of that. So they want a monopoly at that point, and they lobby. They lobby with Congress. They lobby with the courts, and often they're very successful in getting patents. This is true, for example, not only of software patents, to a biological patent. So we're familiar now with the idea that you can patent genes and so forth and so on. Now, as it turns out, once again, there was a, you didn't used to always be able to patent genes and, and plants and animals and so forth. And yet there was thriving innovation, the breeding of plants, the cross-breeding of, of plants, the development of new strains of things 
right? It's thriving industry. So this is something, this is something to read the details about in the book, but we document how there was this growing and thriving industry. And then when things leveled off and people said, oh gosh, we, then they wanted to patents and they got the patents. So this is, this is somewhat of the history. This is somewhat of the history of, of, of intellectual property. I think one of the, one of the most offensive things to me personally, well, I've met a lot of many offensive things about it, but they, they, the, Congress of the United States keeps extending copyright and they're constantly extending copyright, not for people writing new works. They do it for that, but they extend copyright retroactively. So that means if I wrote a book or my great, great grandfather wrote a book in 1930 or something like that, which was supposed to patent that copyright, which was supposed to expired, say, 1950 or 1960, Congress said, no, we extend that. And they said, we extend that again, and we extend that again, so that the book would never leave copyright. Now, this was never the intention of copyright, but here's the thing. If the purpose of copyright is to promote innovation, there could be no reason to extend copyright and things that have already been done, because after all, we don't need to encourage or discourage them. What's finished is finished. So this is just a giveaway. And who is it a giveaway to? So if I remember correctly, I remember correctly in a testimony before Congress in the most recent copyright extension, there were the offspring, I believe the grandchildren of some famous musicians who seemed to have fallen on very hard times compared to their illustrious ancestors and had no way of earning a living beside the royalties paid by their grandfather's great work. Now, why being the grandchild of some great person should entitle you to a lifelong living and that Congress should pass a special law that you should be allowed to continue collecting money forever is completely beyond my comprehension. But this was viewed by Congress as very simpatico. These poor people, I guess they just couldn't make their way in life without this money that was given to them from their great-grandfathers. So, um, I, as I say, I found it rather offensive, but Congress was was much more impressed with this than I was. Yes, I believe you're referring to the Gershwin family, yes, uh, as noted family. in your book. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. How could they possibly make money unless they were relying on the sale of their works of their long dead grandfather or whatever it was in that case? Yeah, a pretty <laughs> ridiculous argument. And as you also note in the book, um, the U.S. Constitution allows copyright for limited times and then only to promote the progress of science and the useful arts and the retroactive extension clearly violates both of these provisions. After the Copyright Extension Act was passed, it was challenged in court on these constitutional grounds, Eldred v. Ashcroft. Surprisingly to some, justices who have argued that they take the literal meaning of the Constitution seriously ruled that a limited time is in fact an unlimited time, <laughs> which goes to show this, this, the absolute arbitrariness of this. Nobody was more shocked by this. The person, the lawyer who pushed this case was Larry Lessig. Larry Lessig... Larry Lessig is, is a, actually relatively left-leaning. Relative, I, I know him, but I also know his work. And he's worked a lot on copyright issues. And he's not, he's, not as, he, he's not opposed to copyright as I am. But he is of the view that it's gone much too far. And he pushed these things in court. He's relatively left-leaning. But he knew the right-leaning. He actually, I believe he clerked for one of the... Um, one of the more right-wing Supreme Court justices. He had a great deal of respect for this point of view of, you know, the literal meaning of the words. And he went to court with confidence that these conservative judges, because it was so clear-cut, would rule in his favor. And I don't think there was anybody more shocked than he was when he discovered that that wasn't the case. 
that he became he became fed up. He also, I believe, after that, he pushed for a law in Congress that would require. So, it, it, um, at one time, copyright required renewal, and one of the issues that comes up in this whole copyright mess is a lot of the a lot of works, most of the works that were written long ago. Nobody has any idea who holds the copyright. So these are called so-called orphan works. Um, and so they're basically lost because you can't use them, but you can't find a copyright holder to pay them either because nobody knows who owns the copyright now. And so Larry had proposed a very simple law. It would, again, have copyright. It would resume the idea you have to renew your copyright periodically, and you just have to pay a dollar and send in a postcard or something, and you can renew your copyright. But the advantage is that if there was really nobody there, and it was really lost, there'd be nobody sending the postcard and pay the dollar, and then it would come into the public domain. <clears throat> That's a pretty modest proposal. I think it was pretty soundly defeated in Congress. At which point, Larry became completely fed up. So he realized, he realizes, I think pretty much everybody realizes that the, what's behind this is an excessive, an extremely effective lobbying effort, combination of lobbying and propaganda by a number, by a number of firms, um, Disney corporations particularly complicit in this. And I can explain the issue from the perspective of Disney Corporation. So Disney Corporation, people, people refer to these laws as the Mickey Mouse laws. And the reason for this is that Mickey Mouse is covered under copyright. Nobody, I can't make a film starring Mickey Mouse because that would be a violation of Disney copyright. Now, that copyright, I believe, was first scheduled to expire in about 1960. It's quite an old copyright. And so Disney went to Congress and proposed extension of copyright and extension of copyright retroactively so that Mickey Mouse could have a few more years. Now, think of it from the point of view of Disney. This makes perfectly good sense from Disney's point of view. Because the copyright's about to go, the value of getting extension to them is very great because they can have another 10 years starting today. So if I extend copyright from 90 years to 100 years, me as an author, perhaps you write, perhaps you write stuff, right? What, what is the extra 10 years from 90 years to 100 years do to you? That a great advantage? Are you going to be a richer person because you got a hundred years copyright rather than a ninety-year copyright? Makes no sense, right? So from the point of view of encouraging works, it's silly. But from the point of view of a copyright that's about to expire, it's a great thing. Ten more years of Mickey Mouse is worth a lot of money. So they campaigned heavily. There's also there's also an insane propaganda campaign. I haven't I haven't seen a film in the United States for a while, but I remember they always used to have these long trailers at the beginning with some poor beaten down carpenter or something like that worked on a movie set about how piracy didn't hurt the big guys and was bad for him, the poor carpenter and so forth and so on. I'm here to tell you, by the way, the opposite is true. Um, but uh, anyway, you know, there's a propaganda campaign. There's a lobbying campaign. They buy support in Congress. They are effective at the Supreme Court. And Larry Lessig got fed up with this and he quit working on copyright issues and quit working on Internet issues and went to work instead on corrupt government corruption, which I have to agree with him is really the heart of the problem. It is. And so let's get to that heart of the problem, because uh, it seems to me that almost no one who at least knows anything about the current copyright and, and patent regimes would defend them as they are. Um, they're, they're just ludicrous on their face and arbitrary. The, it generally, however, the default position would be, yes, we need to, we need to fine-tune the laws and we need to make them work for the people, but, but still the idea, the fundamental idea is good and just, that we do need these protections to, to spur innovation, to reward creators. So 
What is the argument against the Larry Lessigs of the world? The people who think, yes, this, this regime is okay, we just need to change it a little, we need to rein it in rather than abolish it altogether. So I would, I would not disagree with the proposition that there's some circumstances in which some small amount of intellectual property might be effective in increasing innovation in a useful way. It's certainly very hard to rule that out in specific instances. My sense is from looking at the data and from looking at empirical studies is that effect is very, very small. It appears that on the balance on the balance that intellectual property does very little to either hurt or promote innovation, it seems almost a wash. So given this, the argument is really a camel's nose under the tent problem. You know, it's fine. We scale back patent law to what it was in the 1800s in the United States where it was much less and it worked much more effectively, right? The problem is the lobbyist nose is into the tent. And as soon as the lobbyist nose is in the tent, we get extension after extension after extension after extension. First, we have to have biologicals, then we have to have software. Who knows? Who knows what next is going to have to be copyright or have to be patented, right? So the, the argument is the only safe thing to do is to get rid of it, to really get rid of this. Now, this might give you some degree of skepticism, as the Swiss once did, through a constitutional amendment that says you cannot, you cannot have patents. You cannot have copyright. So one thing we're, the one thing we're confident of is, is this, would, this would not have a detrimental impact. It probably have a mildly positive impact on, on innovation. But of course, it's not just a matter of innovation. It would make the things that have been innovated ever so much more useful than they are. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing to look at the way we strangle ourselves. You know, we're very, we're very taken with our iPhones and our Android phones and all this information at our fingertips. What we miss in all this is what we don't have, but what we could have. Because what we could have is we could have a library of everything, right? We wouldn't have just a few films of maybe we could get Netflix or maybe we couldn't get Netflix on our phone. We wouldn't have a few books because, you know, Amazon is willing to sell us a few books for our Kindle. We could have everything on our phones. We could have access to documents, to books, to newspapers, to films, to videos. We could have everything on our telephones. And people don't understand how revolutionary that would be for doing research, for enjoyment, and on and on and on. So there's a whole world out there. There's a whole world out there. We don't see what the world would be like with these kinds of innovation. This is one of the difficulties. This is one of the reasons why this kind of lobbying is relatively effective. Because it's easy for the people with the gains. It's easy for Disney to see how it benefits them to extend the copyright of Mickey Mouse. What's hard for the rest of us to see is how we benefit from having greater freedom of access to ideas than we currently have. How it builds innovation. How it builds you know, literature that doesn't exist. You know, People can't write sequels to Harry Potter because it's copyright, right? And on and on and on. Maybe some of the sequels would be very bad. Maybe some of them would be very good. Maybe there would be a parody that would be very good and so forth and so on. All these things that don't happen, we don't see. And the same thing in the field of innovation. We don't see the great computer programs, right? Why don't we see great computer programs? Why do we, why does the Kindle, why does the Kindle for the Amazon work so badly? 
Have you ever tried using this Kindle software? It's really terrible. I mean, I have another book reader. It's called Moon Reader for reading free books. It's perfectly fine. It's what you expect. And you put it on, you read a book, and that's that. It saves the place in the book to the, to the web, and you go to another device, and it's there. With the Kindle, the thing boots up, and then it takes a long time, and then it crashes, and then it puts some ads on, and then you try to find your place, and it hasn't synchronized correctly. It doesn't work. It's a really crap piece of software. Now, why doesn't somebody just build a better Kindle? Because the copyright owners, in collusion with Amazon, make sure that their books can't be read on anything except for proprietary Amazon software. This is just a small example, but multiply this by a thousand, multiply this by a million, and you see all the things that we don't have. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to visualize the world as it's not. But what's perhaps easier to understand is we've gone through tremendous growth and tremendous innovation and that this would be ever so much greater. Whatever these things are would be greater if not for the suppressing effect of patents and copyrights and monopolists who try to take advantage of them. It's funny that you bring up that example, actually, because I read your book in PDF format since it was available online. Yeah. I downloaded it in PDF format. and But PDF... Uh, it's a pain to convert it to a handy ebook format. So I just, I decided, okay, I'm going to read this one in the Adobe PDF reader. So I get the app for that. And it was just, yeah. it was a pain to use. It doesn't highlight properly. It's a terrible app. And then getting that file off of my phone onto my desktop to prepare for this interview, everything about it was a hassle and an annoyance <laughs> because yes, because yeah. the, the uh, intellectual monopoly laws make it so that these apps won't play with each other and the files won't play with each other versus open source. Imagine if everything right. was open source. And and this, I think, is one of the responses, because another thing that people are going to say to this is, yes, but I'm a creator. How on earth am I going to make a living if there's no intellectual monopoly laws? So, you know, how am I going to do this? And there are a million answers to that. Um, but I don't think any answer is ever going to satisfy someone who's coming at it from that perspective, because that isn't really the heart of the matter. I, I think the heart of the matter here is that we have a, a sort of moral intuition that I spend years of my life doing whatever, writing this book, inventing the better mousetrap, whatever it is, pouring my heart and soul and creative energy into this thing. And then I put it out in the world and immediately it's copied everywhere and everyone's taking it or someone rips the, the title page off my book and puts one on with their own name on it and starts selling it as their own book. Or I mean, We have a moral intuition. That is wrong. That is, that is some sort of theft. You've taken something of mine and are now selling it yourself. How is that moral intuition wrong? Are we seeing it in the wrong way? Or is there something else going on? There were sort of two halves of that moral intuition. So I think, I think there's pretty broad agreement that tearing off the title page and putting your own name on is wrong. Um, that's a rather different matter than keeping the title page as it is and reselling the book. Um, it's, you know, it's, I think a lot of it is just lack of, lack of knowledge and lack of experience. People are not necessarily very good at business, so they, they visualize copyright as their entree and that they're going to make money off of it. What they don't understand is that that works for, you know, for Stephen King and these great authors. What they don't understand is it's never going to work for them, the small author. Um, a lot of... Um, a lot of so there was there's a small there's a small science fiction publishing company um, Bain Publications I think uh, it was started created by a man named Jim Bain who I think actually passed away not so long ago but he, they they're small they're small title but they actually publish a lot of very reputable science fiction and he went into the electronic publishing business relatively early on and he 
he and associate with authors say so there's what's called DRM, digital rights management, prevents copying. Um, they never use digital rights management for the books that they electronically released. And there was a there was a rationale on it. They understood perfectly well that that increased the chances that it would be pirated. Uh, and so they would sell it and people could make copies and give them away or even resell them and so forth. It wasn't legal, but there's nothing really to stop it. They certainly weren't in any position to launch big copyright lawsuits about it. Um, but here's the thing for the small author, you know, for the small author and many of the authors, many of the authors wrote about this. It was actually brought them greater financial reward to have their works pirated. Why is that? Because... The problem with being not such a prestigious author isn't that people try to steal your stuff. It's people don't know who you are. You know, it's obscurity is the problem. And people, if people were to pirate your stuff and, and, and resell it or give it away, the value of the free publicity you get actually turns out to be much greater than what you lost through sales that you were never going to make anyway. Right, so you know, you put yourself in this position. I'm going to sell a few copies. There's a bunch of people that are not going to buy copies. Somebody gives those people copies for free. Right, people now there's more of them to discover my work. There's a lot of people out there that are not going to like my work, but some of them will, and some of those people are going to be revenue generating for me. So I'm going to wind up making more money this way, even though oddly enough, it seems like people are are taking taking what's mine, and yet I'm the better off for it. Um, the, the, book, the book with McKelly is an interesting case in point. So it's, it's part of the contract with the publisher that there's allowed to be a free PDF online. The contract with the publisher allows only that. It doesn't allow other formats. It doesn't allow it to be more widely distributed. Um, this kind of contract, by the way, was very uncommon at the time. We had to negotiate this with some difficulty. Um, but um, you know, we couldn't get better than that at the time. Now, I'm pleased to say that there is a, um, I have a more recent book, which is on a different topic, but which I published with open book publishers. That book is released under a um, Creative Commons license. It's a Creative Commons license that allows people even to adopt the book for their own purposes, provided they give credit for it. Um, and I'm pleased to say, I'm pleased to say that the other day I, I got my first royalties from the sale of that book. Um, and this despite the fact that the contract, the contract was written in such a way that the first bulk of the royalties, there was some threshold that had to be exceeded with everything going to the publisher until we reached the threshold before I got any money out of it. Now, I'm not gonna get rich off of that book, but I was never gonna get rich off of that book. Um, so point is, you know, there is a market for sales even in the face of being able to reformat and resell. So this book, you're perfectly free. You can reformat it for your book reader um, and you can sell it to your friends and that would all be perfectly legal. Um, and yet, despite this, I, I, the author, do make at least a small amount of money off of it. To be honest, with the kind of books I write, I never make a great deal of money off of it. Um, you know, there, there was another example in our book, which is an interesting one. It was the example of the, um, of the online comic industry. So I don't know how much you know about the history of comic strips. When I was a kid growing up, you know, there were two. There were the comic books, you know, the ones now the Marvel comic books. But the main, the main revenue was the uh, were newspapers. There would be syndicated comics. So there would be Peanuts by Charlie Schultz, right? And he would 
he would sell this to a syndicator and the syndicator would distribute it to a large number of newspapers who would pay for it and publish it. And so they, all the newspapers basically had the same, you know, 12 or 15 comic strips. And there were 12 or 15 comic strip writers who made a lot of money. And that was basically the industry. So lots of people, turns out, are happy to draw comic strips and even reasonably good at it, but there's not a big mass market for them. So the advent of the Internet changed that because, you know, you or I, if we could draw and if, if we had good humor, which I personally don't, but maybe you do, you know, could do our little comic strip and we put it online. And then we face a dilemma because we could try to charge people for viewing it. But then who would ever, you know, whoever, <laughs> you know, there was some unknown comic, some unknown comic person, are you going to go put money on his website so you can see if it's any good or not? So, but actually, as it turns out, some of these guys made pretty good money, but the revenue model they used was rather different and, in fact, rather clever. So they, they gave it for free. And they built a clientele, maybe 500, 1,000, 10,000, depending on how good they were, but a, a dedicated group of people really liked their particular comic strip. And you know how they made their money? It's almost a joke. They made it on T-shirts, right? T-shirts. Because what they did on the T-shirt is they put the favorite comic character from their comic strip. And people who were devotees in the comic strip thought that was really cool and would spend extra money for buy a T-shirt from the website so they could show their friends they had this cool comic character that they only knew about. So there's a lot, there's a lot, and this is called complementary sales in a technical sense. There's a lot to be said for thinking of ways you can make money by selling products other than the direct product that you're thinking of. And there's clever ways of doing it. And some of these guys were able to quit their day jobs. It wasn't a bad living. Um, sometimes, sometimes you don't even have to sell different products. I mean, I'm right. case in point. I make documentaries, uh, amongst other things, in, in my website. And I put them out online 100% for free, completely for free. And I say, if you want to support the work, please buy a DVD. People still buy DVDs. It's completely for free, but you can still sell DVDs with it. People subscribe to my website because I have a reputation. If you want this type of work in the future, you're going to have to support the work I'm doing now. And people do that. And because of that, I literally do this for a living. It is, it's incredible to me. And every time I've explained that to people in the offline real world, they always, they always, their mind boggles at that. But what, you're selling DVDs, but it's, it's online for free? Why are you giving it away for, how does this work? Well, it, I don't know, but it works because people want to support work that they think is important. And I think that's, that's one of the answers to the people, how would I ever survive in a world without copyright? Well, I'm doing it right now. Right. Um, but let's get to one other point before we wrap up the conversation, one that I think is important to tease out of what we're saying and underline, is that clearly these intellectual monopolies are essentially political. They are granted through more of a political process than some sort of justice process that's coming oh, down right. from, from the heavens. And that is reflected in the fact that the people who benefit from this are generally those who are most politically connected. From James Watt on down, people who right. have the political connections tend to benefit from this. Let's, let's underline that point for people who, who don't understand that. Yeah, this is, this is, um, this is uh, maybe I'll go here briefly to the history of copyright. Copyright was introduced after the advent of the printing press. And it was in, so before that, there was no real issue. People had to copy documents by, you know, writing out longhand. So there wasn't much of demand for copyright at that point. Copyright was actually introduced by royalty, by, by royalty, particularly in England. And the reason was in order to suppress free speech. So the point was by granting monopolies, 
right? They created a private industry enforcing these monopolies. And one of the jobs of these enforcers was to make sure that no speech was critical to King would ever be published, right? So we see, I think we see some of this today as well in, the, in you know, who, who are the biggest lobbyists for an unfree internet, in your opinion? I would say there's two in collusion with each other. One are the big copyright monopolists, right? They want every bit to be carefully examined to make sure there's nothing they could get money from that could go by without their getting a penny from it. And the other, of course, are the national security services who want to spy on everybody for different reasons or maybe for the same reasons. But the point is that the, here there is a strong reason for collusion between the two groups. Insofar as we have encrypted communication that's safe and free, right, we can, nobody can really prevent us from exchanging copyrighted works. Okay. I suppose we can also occasionally engage in illegal activities amongst ourselves, too, without being eavesdropped by the security services. But you see here a big push towards an unfree Internet. So if we, you know, if we, if we, if, you know, this, this government is encouraging, you think of, think of how it looks from a security service point of view, right? I don't want a free Internet because I want to spy on everybody. I have a bunch of commercial partners now who are happy to support my push for unfree internet. They'd like every router to have a back door. They'd like every packet to have deep inspection. They would like VPNs not to exist. There's a big lobby for that, right? And the lobby is government and copyright monopolists, right? So if, if, we, want, if we want to have a free internet, we, at the end of the day, we have to stand up to both of those different forces and don't underestimate the Disney Corporation here. Okay, finally, uh, their connection is breaking up a little, so let's just finish um, by saying that we probably haven't convinced the diehards in the audience who are going to be committed to the idea of intellectual monopoly one way or another. So, uh, first we will direct them to Against Intellectual Monopoly, and available from your website, I'll put the link again in the show notes. But are there any other resources you'd like to direct people to, uh, people who are open-minded enough to at least look at this issue from the other side? I would... I would recommend, I mean, so I would recommend two things. Um, I don't really recommend anybody so much from the other side, but I think there are people who have broad, broad appeal in different directions. So you previously interviewed Stefan Kinsala. He's written about this. I think his writing on this is very good. I would recommend him. The other is a book about, um, is a book about software patents by Besson and Moore, uh, both, I believe, of Boston University. Um, that's quite a that's quite a good book. It's a little bit more technical in nature, but it really goes into the details of software and how software works and why software patents are are a bad idea. And I think if you're interested in progress and you're interested in innovation, that's a very good place to turn. They're not they're not aggressive. Um, they're not necessarily even anti-patent. They're just very dispassionate in the way that they look at this. And I think if you want to. You know, think about this issue. There would be a good. Uh, there would be a good resource that I would recommend. Excellent. Well, we're going to leave it there for today. Once again, unfortunately, the uh, video has frozen up a little bit, but uh, I do appreciate your time. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. The Federal Reserve, the heart of the American banking system. 
For over 100 years, it has operated in the shadows, controlling America's money supply in total secrecy. So all that information is available uh, in our commercial paper program. And who got the money? Hundreds and hundreds of banks, any bank or that has uh, access to the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve's discount. Tell us who they are. No. Until now. 100 years ago, in 1913, the Fed was created. Fractional reserve banking. The legal authority to do it. Takeover of monetary policy. Are conducted by the Federal Reserve Banks. They are banks. There is no other agency of government which can overrule actions that we take. Century of Enslavement. The History of the Federal Reserve. Watch the documentary for free at corporatereport.com slash Federal Reserve and purchase a copy on DVD to help support the Corbett Report today.